There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. The voice of the people on climate change. And hello, Mark. How are you? I am pretty exhausted, Rich, but happy, smiling, going well. Yeah, we are all talking about our first special, our first audio program that we released on Thursday, successfully in the end. Just tell us a little bit how you feel about that, Mark. Yeah. So when we we started this, I thought, well, how can we do a bit of a different podcast? What's something I'd want to listen to? And I thought... Hmm. I kind of want an audio magazine. I want to have multiple voices in one show. I want a topic kind of broken down from multiple angles so I get a good understanding of it. And that's, I think, what we've managed to pull off last week with our um, Waste Special Part 1. So it it actually (laughs) morphed into two, didn't it? It did, it did. And we weren't expecting that. We thought we could cover it all. In a 30 minute program, 45 minute program, no more. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's morphed into a part two, but I think we've done it right, Mark. I think we've started off by framing the problem, which we've done on Thursday and listeners can go back and look at waste special part one. With waste special part two, we'll be looking at the opportunities that created. And the more we found out about the problem, the more we found out about opportunities. It kind of felt a bit weird to be putting out our first special on quite a quite a downer, quite a serious note, saying, you know, hey, incineration, guys, is really, really bad, but we found that that's just where the conversation is at the moment around the waste industry, mm. around councils, that people really are under a lot of pressure about the waste situation and unfortunately waste to energy yeah. until you dig into it or until you scratch the surface a bit sounds like such a great idea but please do go back and listen to the waste special if you're at all unclear on why we're very anti-burn doug holmes opened my eyes mark his battles against uh, gas giants but in doing so he researched about incineration and he describes just how bad it is Okay, Mark, just moving on a little bit to this week, and you've spoken to Ollie Morice, who's from the Climate for Change. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about where you met Ollie. Yeah, certainly. I, I met Ollie just a few weeks ago at an event that uh, Climate Reality, uh, that's the Al Gore group uh, they put on here in the city. And it was actually an event for optimistic views on climate change. It was like a, a night of fun and positivity while still talking about climate change. The speakers were all from groups doing really good, positive things in the space. And we had a climate change comedian. Uh, he does courses on this. It's called Sustainable Stand-Up. And his uh, his first bit of advice to all would-be climate campaigners is, don't be Kiwi, because no one takes your <laughs> Kiwi accent seriously when you try to tell them something. Ollie was one of the presenters there, and I was really blown away at his story, honestly. He's a very articulate, introspective young man. He's He's able to 
talk about how he came to what he's doing quite well. And what he is doing with Climate for Change is really powerful. So they're a group that go out to people's homes and give talks on climate change in kind of like this this open, structured setting. So it's a good way if you want to have a conversation with your friends and family about climate change, but you don't know where to start, it's all a bit intimidating. You have one of their volunteer facilitators come in to a a host Mm -hmm. location, someone's house, and they basically just have that talk. I understand the climate for change, Mark, is all about that communication. They believe that it's so important to get that message out there. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So what you, what you'll hear in this talk is a bit about climate for change and the, the model they use, which is really powerful. It, it's worked before. You might have heard of this little company called uh, Tupperware. Yes. <laughs> that's That's kind of what they're going for, this kind of party planner at home model that has a lot of potential to scale quite exponentially. And what we're always saying, Rich, is we need to have more conversations on climate change. And that's what they're empowering. And it was really great talking to Ollie, who's out there training facilitators to give these talks and uh, sort of seeing how they're positioned to really scale that up. And just quickly for listeners, there's one point that I found quite fascinating was Ollie first became aware of climate change and nature's battles in the, the big fires, but he still says that they're they're needed. Nature needs fires. Very interesting part. Mm, that's right. Yeah, his story is is quite amazing, and I, I really look forward to sharing it with you guys. Here's Ollie Morris from Climate for Change. Ollie, thank you so much for sitting down with me at the, the Donkey Wheelhouse. You're telling me a little bit of the history about this building that you know. Yeah. Is, there, is there donkeys here now, other than us? Uh, I'm not sure about that. When I ride my bike in and, and park it down the bottom, I haven't seen any donkeys, but you never know. That used that to be one. their old stomping ground, though, on the old stables? Yeah, that's right. Very good. I'll have to, I'll have to get into more of that, that history and figure out what this building is used for, because yeah. we're, we're not in an office right now. Well, unless it's for the, the bad person in the office who's talking too much. <laughs> Can you tell us where we're recording? So we're currently in what we call the vault. Very accurately named. And and the the vault is on the third floor of Donkey Wheelhouse in Progress Central. So Australian Progress is an organisation here in Australia who are trying to help advocacy groups and not-for-profits. Across various different causes, right? It's not just environmental groups. No, it's it's very broad. um, So there's there's a range of groups who we share this this floor with, um, which is really exciting. We're always interacting and you, you hear stories of what other groups are doing. Um, Failures and successes. Exactly. And, yeah. and the vault is on that floor and some people in Progress Central don't like the vault <laughs> because it's a bit like a... yeah, a bit of a cave. Yeah. Yeah, but, we're surrounded by stone walls and a stone roof. It's very bunkerish. Yeah, exactly. But I love it, actually. I probably spend half of my working hours in here. That's great. Um, How's the I, Wi-Fi signal? It, it's good. It works fine. So, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Can we talk a little bit more about the Progress Center here? So I, I, I didn't know what I was walking into this morning, and now yeah. I think I'm going to go office to office and tell people what I'm doing. This is a gold mine. Yeah. That's what I said when I walked in. I was like, jackpot. So who do you work with on this floor? Do you know what the other groups are? Yes. There is the Reichstein Foundation, who have a few people up here. I'm not actually sure what they do. Some fundraising network for women's um, causes and women's organisations. There's a few other. There's the Muslim Collective. Australian Progress have their their staff are here, and they've 
just been running this startup incubator called Progress Labs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they have seven startup uh, people who have got their startups who are also sitting in this space as well. There's a few people from Greenpeace. There's a couple of other organizations, but there's always lots of people sort of coming in and out. And so it's a really collaborative space. That's really cool. Um, Buzzy atmosphere. Yeah. So Australian Progress, yeah, they started Progress Central, this floor, halfway through last year. And the idea was, yeah, to really create a really great environment for different startups and not-for-profits to sort of collaborate and just to create a sort of really diverse community of organizations and people. That's excellent. So how's that working for you guys? Yeah, it's it's been awesome. Like previously we were at the Green Building on Leicester Street up near Melbourne Uni Mm -hmm. in Carlton, uh, which was awesome as well. Uh, but we had basically a few hot desks. Um, yeah, not enough space to yeah, And Katarina, our founder and director, was on one floor and our <laughs> two, two or three staff back then were on another floor, which was in the ACF's sort of space, yep. which was great for to be around a big organisation like ACF and Environment Victoria as well. Just quickly, the ACF, that's the Australian Conservation Foundation? That's right. Yeah. Good, because I'm, I'm just dying from acronyms. Too many acronyms. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> it's good. I can get that out there so I can give a link and, and learn more about them myself, honestly. When you were in the green building yeah. and said there was sort of two or three staff and Katarina was on the floor, were you one of those staff members of that? Um, I wasn't. So I've been involved with Climate for Change since our inception back at the end of 2014, Mm. Uh, but I was only a volunteer until the end of last year. In 2015, when I I was volunteering probably two or three days a week, Mm -hmm. uh, I did spend most of my time at 60L, um, so the great building. But no, I've only been as a staff member here at Progress Central. I I guess I'm working backwards a little bit because we've gone from where we are now to where the group was located before and through your staff member now. Let's start from the beginning. Like we you're now very passionate about the environment and you educate other people about the realities of what's going on in the world and, and sort of the trajectory we're on with business as usual yeah. to dire climate change. Where did that start for you? What was your sort of childhood like? Was this something that was in you from a young age or you had to learn later on? Yeah, so I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, pretty close to Warrandyte, which is a pretty green sort of area, and it's pretty prone to bushfires. Mm-hmm. You can't have nice things in Australia. You say, like, it's a beautiful green suburb, and I was yeah. about to say, that sounds lovely. No, it's prone to bushfires. I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's not one thing here, it's another. Yeah, and my grandpa actually also had some land up in the Grampians, and so we've been going there since I was a little kid and just camping out in the bush, and also, obviously, the Grampians has a big fire risk when yes. you're living around the oh, fire heritage really, yeah. isn't it yeah well, it's not i mean it's we need it for the environment mm-hmm. and the nature thrives with fire it's a lovely um, area but it gets rain it's a lovely area <laughs> but it gets fire yeah, yeah exactly yeah so from a young age i had a strong connection to nature and the school i went to yeah focused on getting students to engage with the environment and we went on a lot of hiking camps and um, we did a lot of small-scale farming through the school and oh wow yeah. what, a, what a great sort of foundation yeah that a lot of people don't get That's so amazing. i guess my parents 
were pretty environmentally minded and me and my sisters grew up with that. But my sisters said it as well that she, and I guess I, I did as well, that we might have just taken that a bit for granted as if that was the norm. Mm. And then but as you get out of school and you sort of realise that that's not the norm. Yeah, your friends are living in the closer suburbs or in the city. They, yeah. just, they didn't have that mindset at all. Yeah, and so you start to realise, yeah, the what what's actually going on in the world. Yeah, my dad's a, a GP and both of my sisters, are, one's a, a doctor and the other one's a midwife. And so in high school, I really wanted to get into uh, physiotherapy and mm-hmm. being in the medical field sort of made sense. And that did come out of desire to, to want to help people, I guess, and that's very much come from my parents, I think. But uh, then two things changed. Back in 2009, and it was Black Saturday, me and some friends were... Swimming in the Yarra River out in Warragite, just trying to cool off. It was the third day in a row of over 43 degrees. And we knew about the fires all over Victoria. And we knew that there was this fire in King Lake that is fairly close to Warragite or just north of Warragite. But I don't think we realised how serious it was. We were just a bunch of 16-year-olds just having a mucking around in the river. And I still remember to this day uh, the wind changed. Within like a couple of minutes, the whole sky just transformed and turned black and I've never seen anything like it since and it was, it was pretty full on. And what that actually meant was that we were worried I was safe because it meant that the wind had actually started um, pushing the fire northwards away from Warrandyte, but we didn't realise that. And Anyway, it was pretty scary. Uh, we were safe there, but in the days and weeks and even months after Black Saturday, it was pretty overwhelming hearing about the stories of, of friends and, and family and teachers from my school who had lost everything in King Lake and in Marysville where the two worst fires on Black Saturday were. And it started to make me realise how vulnerable we are um, as people mm. in the face of these extreme weather events. how powerful the climate is. Yeah. And so, yeah, it started to make me more interested in the interaction between humans and the environment. And so I decided to take VCE, so Year 11 and 12 Geography, as a sort of an elective subject, still hoping to get into physio mm-hmm. at uni. And that interest was, was yeah. strong to percolate. Yeah, it was really interesting to me. And, and so... Year 12, so last year of, of high school um, studying geography, we learned a lot about the Murray-Darling Basin mm-hmm. and the Millennium Drought, which was Australia's one of Australia's worst ever droughts. It ran from the early 2000s to around 2008. In that subject, it was, yeah, it was really interesting to me to learn about how that drought impacted everything. It impacted on our cities, on our water supplies, how we lived in our cities, on rural communities, on agriculture learning about how climate change was playing a role in drought and heat waves and, and fight bushfire as well really started linked to what I was thinking about after Black Saturday again of how vulnerable we are to the impacts of climate change and again how the actions that we take as a society and a civilization have a direct impact on the environment and then that often will then directly impact back upon us. And that sort of really intrigued me. So I got to Monash to study a Bachelor of Science. This was yeah, in 2011. I was still hoping to get into physiotherapy, but on the first day I saw a geologist speaking and she uh, is a really inspiring woman. She basically tells NASA where to search for liquid water on Mars. So she's wow. just 
yeah, really inspiring. And so I decided to take geology as a sort of elective. Didn't really know much about rocks, but I loved my first two years studying geology and learning about how, yeah, the planet has formed and how everything is related to plate tectonics and, and all of these sort of earth system sort of dynamics earth mechanics yeah yeah which was really interesting through geology we do a lot of field work and so i loved going out and i'm um, in the field and i love how you can go anywhere in the world and you can pick up a rock or you can look at a rock formation or a mountain range it and tells you can, a story it can tell you a story about its history and evolution over millions and billions of years which is the time scale thing was what really got me and and so i loved my first two years um, studied geology but then in 2012 I went on exchange to South Africa um, when I actually had a campus in Johannesburg and I did a lot of volunteer sort of work through the university um, in community engagement and sort of community education and development um, with a lot of children who were from some townships so informal settlements around the sort of western mm. side of Johannesburg and it was really obvious to me like on the one hand, poverty and inequality is, is really in your face, but also sort of environmental degradation and the, the impact of the where environmental issues and poverty sort of come together. And through that volunteer experience, when I got back to Australia, I started doing a lot of volunteer things and none of them were really environmentally focused. They were more sort of refugee and asylum seeker children um, doing some education stuff and with disadvantaged and homeless people as well but being in South Africa really got me so mm -hmm. I really just got the volunteer bug I guess mm -hmm. so I was doing a lot of those things and then basically I was finishing off my third year of geology and we were learning about in paleontology so the study of fossils about these five major mass extinctions that have occurred throughout earth's four and a half billion years of history my professors were also teaching us about how we were moving into what's been called the anthropogenic mass extinction or the human-induced mass extinction, which is what's happening now, and climate change is being the main driver of, of the current event. Learning about that was pretty full-on and what had happened in the past to life on Earth, uh, but our lecturers never linked what that meant to us as people and as society and what that meant for our future mm. um, and our future generations. Was that kind of being taught as if the history was already written? It's like, well, this is mass extinction event number one, five billion years ago, here's mass extinction event number two, four billion years ago, and we're in one right now, and this is what it is, and yeah. that's all she wrote. Yeah. There's no, like, well, here's what's happening right now. Here's what we're going to do about it. Yeah. There's none of that talk. Yeah. It was just, yeah, and I feel like it's a quite a common thing with scientists is mm. that it's very difficult or it seem, it's seemingly difficult for scientists to link science with humans, mm. the, the connection between yeah. them both. Whether you call it the communication side or just the, yeah. the applied science. Yeah. So for me, that was yeah, really challenging because I sort of come to terms with climate change or was coming to terms with it uh, and, you know, you, you put your trust in your university and your your professors and lecturers and... Either you and educate you for the future and exactly. the future they're teaching you about is bleak yeah. and yet there's no talk about it. Yeah, they just about it. no mention. I still remember one lecture, I think it was, it was in environmental geology, so the more sort of environmentally focused mm -hmm. 
and there was one lecture, there was one slide in the whole 12 weeks that mentioned climate change. It, she just, the lecturer just put up the slide and it said, she was like, she started by framing it. She was like, look, I know you've probably seen this so many times, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, but we all know, you know, climate change is happening and it's really serious. And then it was the next slide. It was, and I was, I just sat there and I was like, this is crazy. And at the same time, a lot of our lecturers were doing consulting for big oil and gas companies like Shell and BP. And so I felt like totally, yeah, just disengaged and disempowered by my course and, and the university itself. And so I ended up looking elsewhere. And I ended up taking an elective subject on the ethics of ecology. Um, it was more sort of philosophy unit and mm-hmm. ended up reading one of Peter Singer's books, um, the Melbourne-based philosopher, and Peter Singer talks a lot about our individual responsibility to reduce our carbon footprint. And so from that point, I just started to try and do everything as an individual. So I gave away my car, started cycling everywhere. Uh, I joined a community garden, started volunteering at series, went back to being a vegetarian and just started to try and do all of those things that we think about when we talk about sustainability. But the more of those individual actions I took, uh, the more they sort of occupied my life, the more I realized that while those actions are really important, I think they can often make our lives a lot healthier and happier. Mm -hmm. Those individual actions are never going to be enough to change the systemic cause Mm -hmm. that is driving climate change. And so... From that point, yeah, I started trying some more, some things that were, had a bigger sort of focus on system change. Mm-hmm. And I tried volunteering with the Greens and tried to volunteer with a number of other things, but nothing really clicked or, or felt like it was for me, I guess. Then randomly I saw Climate for Change advertising a research sort of internship volunteer position on ethical jobs and I applied and that was at the end of 2014. Basically, Katerina had just started out, so she had the idea of climate for change and she wanted to recruit some volunteers to basically do the research that would then be incorporated into our Mm -hmm. conversation program to educate people about the issue. There were so many people applied for that position. She only wanted 10 people, but I think like 20 people applied um, and they ended up being like 15 people doing the, the research and there was three or four of us who had done fundraising before and so yeah, um, that fundraising she put campaign. us into this fundraising team and we um, yeah ran a crowdfunding campaign back then which raised about 30 grand I think and we used that to employ our first paid staff member who then basically set up our conversation program and trained our first team of facilitators. During that first year, I was yeah, involved in fundraising, volunteer coordination, um, setting up our sort of volunteer program and um, systems and stuff. And it was basically just me and Katarina and a few other volunteers. Then when we hired Chris, who was that first staff member at the end of 2015, everything started to um, move forward and I was part of the first team of facilitators and I did that for about six months and then I actually got a job over in the US working in Yosemite National Park. I went over there and lived in a tent for six months. Wow. <laughs> and then when I got back, everything had sort of just moved along like yeah. hugely. There was all these people I'd never met before involved, all these new facilitators and we were basically running conversations in Melbourne like 
one, every set one to two days, which wow. was so exciting from when I'd started and it was just me and a few other people and, and mostly Katarina to then quite a large team of volunteers yeah. um, and then a few staff members as well. Wow. Um, so all it took was for you to go to Yosemite and then yeah. everything happened. <laughs> so I, maybe I should go away then. <laughs> <laughs> you come back, it'll be all of us. Yeah, so that's, I, I guess that's my story of how I got into, yeah, the climate mm. um, movement. And since being a part of Climate for Change, I've joined many other organisations. I volunteer with another organisation called Climates, yes. who does stuff in the Pacific around adaptation. I volunteered with Greenfleet, who do like reforestation for carbon offsetting. I volunteered for the Great Forest National Park. Volunteered for so many other things that I wouldn't have without have been without have been part of Climate for Change and meeting all of the other amazing people that had had previous experience in the environment movement or climate movement. And so, through being a part of the Climate for Change community, has definitely been the most rewarding thing mm-hmm. that I, that has happened to me in my life and that's why I'm, I've while I've joined as a staff member and I work three days a week I still volunteer as well mm-hmm. I don't know how many hours because I just you don't count yeah <laughs> um, but you don't want to know yeah it's definitely has been the best way to deal with the grief that I carry every day with understanding what's happening to, mm-hmm. to the planet and our role as, as humans in that. How do you think your mindset shifted between, you know, I, there's a lot of other things going on. You were a teenager, it was high school, but what do you think if you were able to articulate all the before geography elective and after, what kind of shifted in your way of looking at the world? Mm-hmm. I guess when I tell that little story of how I ended up getting involved, I sort of chose those two part points as the sort of most influential. But what I spoke about before that in terms of like my family and the school that I went to and my engagement with nature as a young child, I think that all of that sort of incrementally actually is what gets people to a place where they're ready to take action. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I probably acknowledge that it's never going to... Well, maybe for some people it is a light bulb moment or it's one thing that really gets them. But I sort of believe that it's probably a lot of other things before that that then allow that one moment to actually be really noticed and then acted on. Uh, And so as a facilitator, a climate for change facilitator, so we go into people's homes and... Basically, we watch a video about climate change and then we uh, facilitate a conversation and discussion to let everyone come to terms with the impacts that are already been happening around the world, what it means to them as people, and also how those solutions and stuff play a role in in responding and and how, and sort of leading in that discussion into ways of how to take effective action. And you, I hear stories all the time of how people have come from conversations and then that sort of built on other incremental changes to mm-hmm. lead them to take more action. But there was one particular story that recently another facilitator who I'm supporting told me that they facilitated a conversation at someone's place and that, that, that was one of their friends who hosted that, that 
gathering or conversation a couple of months after they hosted again. So they actually hosted two conversations, this friend of this facilitator. At the second conversation, we they got to the end of the discussion and basically the facilitator sort of asked the group, uh, so what's everyone going to do next? Like, what are your next steps? The host um, started off and said, so the last conversation I hosted a couple of months ago, I got to the end and we talk about ways to engage with democracy and ways to, you know, stand up to politicians and let them know what we need to be doing to respond to climate change responsibly and within time, the time that we have. Uh, so we very much focus on citizen-based actions. And that host basically said to the facilitator or said at the conversation, she was like, at the last conversation I hosted, we got to the end and we were all talking about, you know, writing to MPs or engaging with politicians. And I was like, no way am I ever going to write it, write to my politician. Like, that's definitely not for me. I won't be doing that. Maybe I'll buy a keep cup or something. <laughs> and she, so she said that and then she was like, but over the last couple of months and just thinking about that conversation and then hosting again tonight and watching the material again and, and seeing everyone engage with it, I'm ready to, to write a letter to my MP and that's what I'm going to do. That's my next step. And so for me, and there's lots of other stories that we constantly have where this sort of thing happens where it's mm, like... It's slow burn. Well, some people come to our conversations, you know, and that's it. They're going to go away tomorrow and they're going to join Climate for Change as a volunteer or go and write to the MP or join another campaign organisation on climate change. Probably for most people it isn't, but what it does is it provides them that first step and then we keep, yeah, we've heard so many stories of people then later on going and doing things and slowly with those incremental changes from buying a keep cup to maybe in a few months, maybe writing to an MP. It's like mm -hmm. everyone has their journey and at Climate for Change, I guess, we acknowledge that and, and our role, we see it as just providing that sort of first engagement, mm -hmm. getting people to understand the, the facts and what it means to us as people and showing them that these are the more effective ways to take action but acknowledging that not everyone will be ready for those straight away. All right, Ollie. So that was, was really good to get some sort of perspective on, as you say, your your journey. And this is this is a transition. It's not a, a light switch moment. We understand that we've changed the planet. Therefore, we had the power to change the planet. And boy, are we powerful! And we're doing it every single day through everything we do, pretty much. Yeah. Unless we're doing truly sustainable things, you know, you're riding your bike. That's great. The bike still had to get made. And, you know, yeah. I, I catch the train. Great. That power is still largely coming from coal plants. Yeah. So those are the things that are changing the planet. Hey, therefore, we're very powerful. And yet, at the same time, on the other hand, the world could snuff us out in an instant. We, You study geological time. We yeah. live in this, you know, there's a reason we're called the in a, in a Goldilocks zone of where our planet is. We yeah. are under such tight tolerances to be able to live here. Mm. And we are actively pushing ourselves out of those tolerances. Yeah. But that's all philosophy. And these are conversations we all have people in this space over a beer or just at the drop of a hat. So while I've got you here and sort of to give people maybe some more relevant sort of actionable information, what they can, what they can do today rather than just sort of talk yeah. philosophy, what you're doing now, you're a staff member at Climate for Change. You're working three days a week. You're volunteering a lot with your other time. 
what else are you doing in your life to sort of sustain your life? Like, how are you not yeah. like a pauper on the street? <laughs> like, because I would love to do what you're doing. I'm, yeah. I've got you know a wife and a cat. I need to support, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm I'm currently doing my masters part time as well. So I'm sort of part time work, part time study, and then. This year, like last year, I did a lot more volunteer work with other things, but this year it's because trying to um, juggle masters, don't have to my thesis. Very understandable. Work is a bit is a bit challenging, um, and it has meant that I have to end up studying a lot on the weekends, which isn't the most ideal thing. But it's only for this year, and uh, I'm really enjoying what I'm learning and, and studying. So I guess for me, there's a few things that I do to to try and balance climate change mm-hmm. and life. But because climate change is my biggest focus, if I'm not doing a lot on climate, then I probably just get anxious. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, I yeah, I am. I feel like. I'm living a pretty balanced life. Other people might not think so, and I, and I definitely wouldn't expect other people to be doing as much on the one issue as maybe I am. For me, I, I guess I do balance it with trying to... I, I mean, I, I had a few New Year's resolutions at the start of the year, which I made because I knew that this year was going to be challenging, trying to balance uni and working part-time. And one of them was deleting my Facebook. <laughs> Just definitely saved me a lot of time. Maybe that's that's more for the study thing, though, um, and maybe that's not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing was I, yeah, I said that I would try and go for one long hike every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've got quite a few friends that I'll go hiking with, and up until yeah, this month I've been on a actually every month this year I've been on a long hike, whether it's a for a weekend or just a long day hike. Actually going out into nature for me is really important. And especially when you are doing environmental work where often you're just on a computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you you find yourself being disconnected from yes. the work you're doing, which right. I think yeah. is really challenging. But I think that's really important just to try and get out into nature. Yeah, I try and go out and see my family like every week or second week as well so my sister just had a second child so your so uncle duties yeah yeah so try and go out there and just spend time with them and but i also find that doing those it's almost like those individual sustainability actions are the things that like keep me balanced so last year i never dumpster dove yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure how you say that's that. a new verb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before, but last year, I mean, last year, yeah, because I'd started this masters and I'd met all these other people who were doing different environmental stuff, not necessarily on climate. Um, lots of people were doing dumpster diving and urban foraging, so I started doing all those things. And dumpster diving is definitely one of the funnest things you can do. And for me, doing other stuff like that that's maybe not focused on climate change or the hard sort of thinking is what actually. Keeps makes me happy and, and, and it's fun and also just yeah I'm not sure does that sort of it really does when you talk to people doing work on climate change you end up talking about the climate change very quick yeah and then of course the conversation gets very heavy and somber and, and yeah. sound like a turn off to most people the work you're doing day in and day out having fun 
Yeah. Like, it was so nice to actually hear that word from you that yeah. Yeah, it's fun. And yeah. these are things you look forward to doing in your week. Yeah. It's, but it's the purpose. And yeah. you've got the, the reason for the route, which is, yeah, it's big and heavy and a little bit doom and gloom. But like, yeah. you wouldn't keep doing it if you weren't having fun, I hope. Yeah. Because no, we don't need more people to self-sacrifice. No. We need people to do sustainable things for themselves yeah. and for the planet. Because yeah. otherwise, we burn out. Yeah, that's and, great. Yeah, and definitely, I feel like because of being around all these other people um, that you know do different things on sustainability or climate, I've ended up just doing way more of those individual actions, which I, you know, I said previously that I realized weren't aren't going to change the the system, which I still acknowledge, but. Those things are really great to keep you happy and, and healthy, like cycling or yeah. you know, going for a bushwalk. Or I've started, yeah, growing my own food. So brilliant, like growing on my own veggies and stuff, and that's fun. And it's the best thing when you can grow your own vegetable and then eat it. That's really right, rewarding. And so, yeah, I think doing all those things really help complement or balance that sort of harder stuff. I said how I, you know, try and go and see my family and, you know, I can get public transport out there, but it will end up taking two or three hours mm-hmm. after I've got a train, a tram or a bus. That's right. Um, or I could just drive out there and it'll take half an hour. So I'll acknowledge like, you know, I drive sometimes and I, you know, I don't like to drive. I, yep. I mean, it's not that nice sitting in a metal box, you <laughs> know, especially if there's traffic, but Driving a car, you know, gives people freedom and think if you're able to really focus on the systemic change, then you, you shouldn't be like hitting your head, banging your head against the yeah, wall about right. all of the individual things. Yeah. But obviously s- still, you know, trying to do them when you can. And when, whenever I do drive and I get stuck in traffic, I want to kill myself and I <laughs> wish I didn't drive. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which is a good reminder not to drive, but. Yeah. yeah, through what you're doing, you're, and that's the whole point, and it's a brilliant name as well for Climate for Change. You're setting up, you're, you're trying to create the society where the time you spend on the public transport, which is a non, non-optimal, non-efficient yeah. route to get to your parents' house, you're, you catch the car, you take the car instead, but you spend that time laying the groundwork for a better train line. Yeah. Isn't that like the better result? Yeah. You know, you can, yeah, you can feel good about yourself while taking the PT and, and props to all people who yeah. do. That's excellent podcast listening time. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, that's, right. that's why I do actually love getting the train. And, yeah, because you can read and listen to podcasts. That's right. Listen to Climactic. So. Send letters to your MP. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Um, where do you see yourself in 20 years, Ollie? And this used to be the old career fair question or like the yeah. question for kids in school, but you add on. I was kind of assuming, oh, it's the 1960s and the 1980s will just be more of this, right? Yeah. Where do you see, yeah, yourself in 20 years and then maybe under what kind of framework do you imagine the world to be in in 20 years? It's something that I think about all the time and I've had that particular conversation with a lot of people recently. At uni, you know, when I started really learning about climate change and, and wanting to do something, I was wanted to get into disaster management and doing sort of humanitarian stuff. As I've sort of grown over the last few years and, you know, understanding the trajectory of our society, particularly with automation and, you know, the age of technology and robots coming and all of those, those sorts of things, and I've, I've started to become just totally at peace with just not knowing exactly where I'm going to go. 
I don't know what I'll be doing in 20 years. I know that it will probably be something to do with climate change, but whether I'll, whether that's something through education or something more like policy or, or research, I'm not sure. I definitely, since being involved with Climate for Change, I've also sort of pretty happy with, you know, when I was volunteering two or three days, I, I had a job that I actually used to work for in a factory. It was mind-numbing job, but it was totally fine because I could balance it with doing voluntary stuff and things mm-hmm. that I was passionate about and cared about. Uh, and then I worked in a call center for a year and a half and it was a struggle, but I was balancing it with volunteer work. Mm-hmm. And so if I end up having a boring job or I'm okay with that, like I think that's fine. I, and I think, and I really think that, you know, there's so many different groups and causes and organizations, not environmental or climate change only, you know, there's anything that you're passionate about, I think. I'm a big advocate for volunteering and I think that it doesn't really matter what job you have if you can complement it with something that you're passionate about. You know, for some people, I, I wanted to say, oh, maybe your dream job just you know, doesn't exist yet. Yeah. But, but I think, you know, you found it. Like facilitating these conversations, yeah. it's right up your alley. You go, you come at it from a place of the knowledge, which is so vital. But then, yeah, your ability just to empathize with people, listen to them and learn from them, I think. Yeah. Think you're going to be one of these people who's like a lifelong student, and that's great. I look yeah. forward to you knowing you in 20 years and playing that back yeah. to you, being like, <laughs> see how that, like, what, where the road yeah. took you. But that's yeah. really good, Ollie. Honestly, uh, talking to people like you really is inspiring to me and gives me a lot of hope because, and this is why this show exists, is because I needed to have these conversations myself, and no one yeah. else seemed to be doing them. Yeah. And so maybe if I if I'd known about you guys. Before starting the show, I wouldn't need to. I would have just come along to, to meetings on the regular. So um, yeah. I look forward to having more information about Climate for Change probably coming up in the next segment. But um, I think that was a really good sit down with chat with you, Ollie. And, and if people want to get in touch with you and maybe people who are, you know, I remember being 16, 17, working three different jobs, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I think your model is very replicable for, for people like like the person I was. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure if people have questions or anything, I'm, I'm sure you'd be happy to, yeah, to give them some sure. encouragement. So how would they be best set to reach you? Yeah, so there's a few ways. You can go on our website, first of all, and there's lots of information on taking action. So how to write letters, effective letters to MPs. We've got a few tools that to, to do that as well. And there's a pledge on there, which has some great information. There's also opportunities to volunteer, do our facilitator training. You don't have to be a climate change expert. We provide all the training and support necessary. And you just have to be passionate and like talking to people. You can also host a conversation. And in terms of getting in contact with me, you can email me at oli, so O-L-I, at climateforchange.org.au, or you can reach up, um, go onto our Facebook page, message us through that. Um, you won't find Ollie there, but Climate for Change still is. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> well, very good. Thank you again, Ollie. Brilliant. No worries. Um, um, keep up the good work. Thank you. <laughs> And that was Ollie Morice from the Climate for Change. Mark, you interviewed Ollie at the vault in the Donkey Wheelhouse. Can you tell us maybe a little bit more about that? Yeah, I had no idea what I was walking into, honestly. From the outside, they're doing a lot of work on this building at the moment, so I just literally walked into a door through construction scaffolding, 
and then I walk into this beautiful old heritage building with one of these elevators that's it's not separated off behind a wall or anything it's in the middle of the room mm, i don't trust those mark I don't trust no, those no i took the stairs i took the stairs <laughs> um but yeah that's where the australian climate council is located it's where mm-hmm. uh, ethical property uh it's a real honestly it's a jackpot uh, to find a building like this so yeah. full of of ethical social responsible businesses and nonprofits in one place yeah um so I, I i did make sure after my interview to pop my head into a few doors and talk to people yep but yeah the room where me and ollie recorded the vault really is quite a, a special place to find in the city it's like it's like walking into a bunker through mm. a vault door i was quite happy how it sounded i was expecting a pretty serious echo but um i think uh the recording sounded quite good so i'll probably be back there soon Excellent. You heard us talk earlier in the program at the start about uh, our waste special part two. Yeah, so if you know anybody in the construction industry or the recycling industry, anybody doing any cool stuff like this movement towards using waste in roading material, in clothing, anybody in upcycling, you're exactly the kind of people we're hoping to speak to to get that kind of positive message out there about the things we can start to do now that we have to take ownership of our waste in Australia ourselves. Please contact us either on our Facebook page, Twitter, or our email at hello at climactic.fm. That's right. So I really hope you're enjoying what you're hearing every week here, folks. We would absolutely love a review, five stars, of course, on Apple Podcasts. If you are enjoying it, it would be a great help in other people finding the show. But, of course, the most important thing is word of mouth. If you could please just tell your friends and family if you're enjoying the show and think they would get something out of it as well, we would love to have as many of you as possible listening and really taking part in this platform to tell these stories. Yes, and if you've got any ideas that you'd like us to cover, please don't hesitate get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And once again, thank you for listening. For both me and Rich, thank you very much and have a lovely week. Anyway, that's all. Thanks for listening, folks. Before we go, though, we'd like to thank some people. Absolutely. Greg Grassi, our amazing composer, thank you so much for this great new theme. Yes. Check him out at Chambers on SoundCloud. That's C-H-A-M-B-R-E-S. Caleb Fidicaro, our fantastic producer, Yes, he got a promotion. Hold your applause. <laughs> He's at Hipster Jazzbo on Twitter. Don't ask me why. Abby Hawkins, our intrepid designer. Uh, look out for great photos soon of the Climactic logo on a t-shirt, a hoodie, and a cake. <laughs> Check out her work and hire her at abigailhawkins.com. Yes. And finally, Gretchen, our key advisor and resident goat whisperer. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, folks, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. The Climactic Collective. Collective.